your holiday hangovers, and man, I'm still dealing with mine. It's the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin this week. Things really slowed down in the Capitol last week, understandably so. There were no committee meetings to speak of, but the 24-hour news cycle continued its daily grind. It's a good thing for this podcast because it means we still have no shortage of important issues to discuss, debate, and deliberate. We will do that accordingly. So without further ado, from Capitol Square in Madison, we proudly present the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week. I'm Ted Koppel, (laughs) otherwise known as Matt Kittle, investigative journalist, and I'm joined by our premier staff. I'm Bill Osmolsky, MacGyver News Director. Ola Lasowski, Research Associate. Chris Rochester, Communications Director. If you haven't made your New Year's resolution yet, I know we all have, then make one right now. Make one to be more informed on state public, uh, state public policy issues. The perfect way to do that is, of course, to, sub- to subscribe to this podcast. Easy for me to say. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. I have made my New Year's resolution, by the way. Everybody wants to do something. They want to get thinner. They want to quit something. They want to be a better person as the Gallup poll suggests, the latest poll on who wants to do what. I want to do less in 2018. <laughs> That's my resolution. I want to do less. I want to, I want to take more naps. Sit more. Yeah, I want to more sit naps. more. Yeah. I want to watch more television <laughs> idly. You know, to go off on a tangent right away. That Gallup poll, I really liked how, you know, be a better person, be a better person. Beca- you know, to overtook lose weight as the number one resolution. Right. And you know why. Because they've given up on losing weight. No, no, even better than that. It's subjective. Yeah, oh, your New Year's true. resolution is to lose weight? Well, how many pounds do you lose? Uh, I want to be a better person. Yeah, I was a better person this year than last year. Ola was talking about that in France, you say Happy New Year as the greeting or the, in the right. exchange for the month of January. Right, for all of January, yeah. You know, and I think that that's better than... Uh, saying to someone, hey, how's the weight loss program going <laughs> for January? Because we know those are done by the sixth or seventh oh, day yeah. of the new year. <laughs> well, you know, and being that, you know, we're talking New Year's resolutions, the federal government made a New Year's resolution to reform our taxes. Right. Well, they actually kept it. Yeah, yeah the, the new tax reform uh, law is fully in effect. Uh, in fact, last week, Wisconsin's Department of Revenue announced that the typical Wisconsin family will save $2,500 this year due to the reforms. And meanwhile, in high-tax states, homeowners were scrambling to prepay their 2018 property tax bills in 2017 so they could take advantage of the SALT deductions under the old system. Now, under the old system, you could deduct as much state and local taxes as you had. There was no limit. Now there's a $10,000 limit, which begs the question, who pays $10,000 in property taxes? an interesting question. Uh, you said, I believe, it was something like 4 million Americans yeah. uh, pay uh, over 10000 on on their property taxes. So, you know, what's 4 million people to how many people live in this country? <laughs> Based on the coverage, you would think that a lot more people are going to be affected by this. But in reality, that's, that's not the truth. There's going to be a small number of people, comparatively, who, who are dealing with this. And... Uh, Guess what? They're all people in those high tax states. So I think really, ultimately, this is a message 
to people in those high tax states, New York, California, and Illinois, there is another way. You can, in fact, vote with your feet and go somewhere else. And they have. And they have. They have voted with their feet. Interesting piece in the Daily Signal, and they just mined some of the, the new numbers coming out from the Census Bureau, but we see those three high-tax blue states of California, New York, and Illinois losing hundreds of thousands of people. Right. Why our neighbor to the south has shed somewhere in the vicinity of 650,000 residents since yeah. 2010, 115,000 last year alone. Why do you think that is? Is it because uh, there are greener pastures in Wisconsin? Maybe. Yeah. But is it more likely that they are so taxed and so overburdened right. and so sick of record upon record high property taxes and income taxes that they've had enough and they've moved out? I am proud to say that I am one of those refugees from Illinois since 2010. Crossed the border and I never looked back. <laughs> Obviously, you're not alone here. Right, well, exactly. And, and this could really help Foxconn out fill all those jobs. Exactly, and that's and that's some of the things that we're thinking about. No, back to the tax question. You know, you ask who is affected by this. Right. Ten thousand dollars on a property is a fair chunk of change. That sure. means you've got a pretty high-valued property in the main, but it also means that you are a high-taxed property owner. Right. What the tax reform bill is designed to do in part is to say to New York and to California and to Illinois and the other high tax states, we're not going to ask t federal taxpayers across the country to pay your bill anymore right. so that you can write it off and make it look better and continue to spend without limit to continue to increase taxing your, your citizenry and somebody else is going to pay your bill. That day is over. Right. It's all about incentives, and good conservative reforms, I think, increase the incentive to lower taxes, yeah. or at least remove disincentives to lower them. Right, and that's why so many of the folks in the, in the blue states, including uh, some people who are normally conservative in principle, have complained about this. Now they're going to have to live in the real world that other states have had to live in. You have to live within your means. Wow. What a lesson. Every, every taxpayer out there in this country is expected to do the same. Now let's ask government to do it. Now, after all those bold reforms on the federal level, some experts are predicting income tax reform could be on the agenda in Wisconsin in 2018. We could only hope. Now those same experts, like Matthew Glanz of the Heartland Institute, they're pointing to the McIver <laughs> Institute's flat tax proposal as a model for such reforms. Now, Ola, a lot of times a think tank proposes a big policy change and it's immediately forgotten as soon as they put out the press release. But <laughs> the McIver Institute's glide path to a flat tax, it keeps popping up. Yeah. Uh, where do you think it's getting the staying power from? Thank you, Billy. You know, I think there are a couple different reasons why the flat tax has such staying power. I do want to say thank you to Heartland for the really nice write-up. Uh, one, taxes are still too high. Uh, as I often like to say, the plural of anecdotes is not data. While the average payer's tax burden has gone down in Wisconsin in recent years, there are still plenty of people out there who are looking at their tax bills every year, 
hoping for a little more relief. And despite the tax cuts we've had at the state level, shout out to Governor Walker and the Republican legislature for those, Wisconsin still has one of the very highest tax burdens among the states. The fourth highest state and local tax burden in the country, according to the Tax Foundation, which uses Census Bureau data. And ultimately, we're still seeing our government spend more money year after year. Which brings me to my second point. People are recognizing that even after all of these reforms at the state level, budgetary reforms, economic reforms, we still need more spending reforms. And ultimately, we need to shrink the size and scope of government, and including state government. Our plan, the flat tax, is really the only one out there that doesn't trade one tax for another. It doesn't swap them, so to speak, because ultimately what we want is one, fairness, everyone paying the same rate, and two, a lower tax burden overall, and not just a government that's funded a little bit differently, uh, shuffling the deck chairs, so to speak. Um, my last point, momentum at the federal level, uh, I think has been really crucial to this, encouraging everyone to have this conversation. I think it's a pretty safe prediction to say that a lot of states are gonna be looking at tax reform in 2018 and 19. There is an eagerness there. Um, of course, some of our very own leaders in Wisconsin have signified they're willing to do so. Our listeners may remember that the state budget ultimately passed by the legislature this summer spent about 500 million less than what Governor Walker had originally proposed. Uh, Speaker Voss said he would prefer to do some serious tax reform with that money rather than this sort of piecemeal approach. And when you're talking serious tax reform, it doesn't get much more serious than a flat tax. Definitely movement in the right direction for the Wisconsin legislature. It's, it's nice to see these subcommittees of the Ways and Means Committee getting serious about, you know, obviously getting serious about real tax reform. And hopefully they, they look at the, the flat tax as a serious option. And let's not forget that it's not some, you know, rare unicorn of an idea. Right. <clears throat> Wisconsin would be just kind of keeping up with some of our neighbors. Right. Michigan, Indiana, Illinois. We talked about Illinois. <laughs> even all, Illinois. Even yeah. Illinois has a flat tax. It's it's high. Relative, I mean, it's... They just raised know, it this year. They yeah. just raised it. It's probably not going to be going down anytime soon, to be realistic about it. But Indiana's 3.3% flat tax. Um, you know, Wisconsin wouldn't be breaking ground. So this would be a common sense reform for Wisconsin to make. This can be done. And it can be done in a way that uh, takes care of all of the necessities of government. But it's like everything else. It's about priorities. And as you said, Ola, you can't look at tax reform realistically without ultimately looking at spending reform. Right. And the federal government needs to do that. Right. And while Wisconsin has accomplished some of that, there's still a long way to go on that side of the ledger. Right. Well, now that we know from the federal tax reform that people won't die as a result of t changes to the tax code, hopefully that emboldens us here in Wisconsin. I think ultimately what it comes down to, and Kansas learned this, and we, we talk about this extensively in our flat tax report, you can't tax like a conservative and spend like a liberal. That math does not work out. And while we're having all this conversation about the deficit with tax reform right here, you know, if there are people worried about that deficit ultimately growing, guys, 
The answer is in spending reform. That's what needs to happen. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, Indiana actually lowered its flat tax again this year. Oh. They dropped it down a hair. It's now at 3.23%. Mm -hmm. So very, very competitive. A lot of economic activity going Indeed. on down there. And let's not forget that the assembly is on the record supporting a flat tax. That's right. They rolled out uh, shortly after we rolled out our plan in January. They proposed uh, Representative Kuyenga's plan, the, mm -hmm. the road to a flat tax, mm -hmm. which is very similar to ours. So yeah. it's good to see they're willing to make bold reforms. Yeah. There is a political will for it. And I think if you really talk to the average taxpayer in the, in the state of Wisconsin, I think there is a taste for it. I think so. Now, moving along, before everyone left for the holidays, there were some startling developments concerning the John Doe investigations. And Matt, you just interviewed Deb Jordahl about this on the radio. I did. Deborah Jordahl, of course, is uh, an individual I have referred to among several as a freedom fighter, uh, someone who has lived the infamous John Doe from the point of uh, law enforcement's overreaching hand. You know, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of defending defensive stances from the rats scurrying off the ship, the administrators, the bureaucrats at the old government accountability board, the prosecutors involved in this infamous unconstitutional John Doe. But until you talk to someone who has had her life ripped apart by pre-dawn armed raids, until you've talked to someone who's stood next to her 15-year-old daughter while law enforcement officers are rooting through uh, the family possessions and you hear uh, a, an officer say to the 15-year-old, if you tell anybody about what's happened here, you're going to go to jail. Until you've lived that life, you don't know John Doe. And this is the powerful story of Deb Jordahl. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that morning, and then I want to get to really what has transpired, the bombshell revelations, of course, in the last few weeks of just how much more sinister than even maybe you had imagined. Although you saw this firsthand, uh, maybe this is about as sinister as you thought originally. I had hoped that it it actually separated out our attorney-client privileged emails and our personal emails and not gone through all of that stuff and made copies. But, you know, that, that I guess that was a little delusional on my part, given the history of these folks. Um, yeah, it was, it was surreal. Uh, I woke up uh, to some sounds in the yard. It was still dark out. The doorbell rang. My husband and I were met by a deputy sheriff, armed deputy sheriff, who told us she had a warrant to search the house. Wouldn't say why. Um, they would not let me wake my children up by myself. They followed me into their rooms. They woke up. My children at the time were 15 and 17, and they woke up to an armed deputy standing over their bed. I found out months later that my son had thought my, my husband died because, you know, why else would there be people crawling around? And I, I couldn't really say anything. I just had to keep them moving. I was terrified. But I want to stop there because your, your son, as many of us would imagine, you only get a law enforcement official, particularly at this hour, when it's bad news. And usually that bad news is you've lost a loved one. Mm -hmm. Somebody's seriously hurt at the very least. Yes, yes. Um, Horrifying. 
It is horrifying. It is horrifying, especially when you're, you know, a teenager. Um, so they, they corralled us all into the living room and they made us sit there while they searched every closet and every drawer in every room. Then they went through our basement and our garage and all three of our vehicles. And they hauled boxes and uh, of, of paper and all kinds of electronic equipment. They took my, my computer, my daughter's computer, my husband's computer, uh, a number of cell phones, hard drives, you name it, they took it. And all for the school buses and the kids driving to school and their parents driving to work to see, because at this point now that they're hauling things out of the house, it is light. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really something. And I think that the most difficult thing for me was to sit there and see what was happening with my daughter, you know, and when she realized the school buses were going by, it, it dawned on her, the kids at school are going to ask what's going on at our house. And the deputy who was guarding us said, you can't tell them anything or you'll go to jail. And, you know, it, it, it's one thing you do something to me, I can handle it, but, you know, to sit there helpless and watch them do that to your child, um, I, I don't think that will ever go away. That, and I think anybody can understand that, that to hear the, those words come out of the, the deputy's mouth, to say that your child, who is just swept up on, in this for no reason whatsoever, that she can't say anything. What was it like? You have mm. some you have fine neighbors, you know, you've lived in this neighborhood mm-hmm. for a long time. I'm sure they had questions. I'm sure they had concerns about the law enforcement activity at your front door that morning. You know, it's interesting, Matt, because one of the neighbor um, boys said something to my son at school, and that was the only thing that we heard. He went up to him and he said, it's political, isn't it? And, you know... My son shrugged his shoulders and nodded and walked off because he couldn't, literally couldn't say anything. I didn't hear anything from my neighbors. I think they're, I think these are people who are successful enough to mind their own business. Yeah. Um, but then I also heard, you know, months later that there were neighbors who had no idea. You know, they just didn't see it. So, um, yeah, it was hard. But, you know, I, I decided right away, I'm not going to hide. I'm, I'm not going to not go to the grocery store, not go to, you know, the school event or whatever it was. Um, I'm going to continue to live my life yeah. as hard as it is. Yeah. And a very difficult time because here you are under this, under this gag order, you know, this, un, this gag order that uh, uh, an appeals court judge in the federal system called screamingly unconstitutional for good reason. Here you are. Uh, trying to fight for your property and for your reputation and for your basic constitutional rights, and you're silenced, you know, simply because you have been a successful conservative activist in this state for a number of years, and that's really what it was all about. But make no mistake about it, that some neighbors may not have seen it, but many neighbors did. Mm -hmm. They saw the raids. They saw the raids at your home, and they saw the raids at the other conservatives' homes, and that was a very coordinated effort, and that was very much by design. Absolutely. They, they didn't need to come to any of our homes because, as we now know, they've been collecting evidence for 27 years. I mean, I've been, in, I've been involved in politics for 30. So 1990 was the year that Tommy Thompson was first reelected as governor. I was working on that campaign. 
they go back almost my entire career. And, and we know from subsequent lawsuits that they had everything that they said they were looking for when they came into our homes. And I'm still not that there's no other reason to have come into our homes than to intimidate us and to make sure that everybody else knew we were under investigation. And as you, say, they- you know, first of all, I'd just like to say, I mean, it's incredibly brave that she has come out to talk about this stuff. And obviously the people responsible for it would love for her to would love for her to be uh, intimidated into silence. But, Matt, what does come next after, you know, with all that out in the open? It's interesting that that silence was the end game of this infamous John Doe investigation. We know that through the gag order itself, the screamingly unconstitutional gag order that made these people, forced these people into silence. They couldn't even defend themselves and their reputations in the public where they face jail time and expensive fines. A lot of interesting things happened right before the Christmas holiday. On uh, the Friday before Christmas, the the Senate committee uh, that deals with oversight uh, came out with a a, a narrow 3-2 vote, Republicans in the majority voting in favor of asking the state attorney general to expand his investigation into the John Doe. Remember that Attorney General Brad Schimmel's investigation really was only focused on the illegal leaks to the liberal publication, The Guardian. This motion expands that investigation. There is also a significant movement now to create that bicameral legislative committee that would have subpoena power to get answers about what really went down in John Doe. And it's interesting, at the same time, you have uh, folks like uh, elections administrator, interim administrator, Michael Haas, who is demanding apologies from some Republican leaders. He believes he's been slandered in uh, in all of this in, in recent weeks. Um, the silence is deafening from the Republican lawmakers, by the way, in response to Mr. Haas. Well, I'm sure, you know, with this story really picking up steam right before the holidays, a lot of people who have their fingerprints, you know, on this and in, you know, one former official's situation actually has his name on the box of evidence, uh-huh. they would have really have preferred that, you know, this thing just kind of faded away during the holiday lull, but sounds like, you know, we're back, we're, we're, you know, everyone's getting back to work and, you know, the pressure's still on. Yeah, there are some Republicans who are very angry and uh, they are turning that anger into action. I think of Senator Leah Vukmir found out recently that she was being spied on and her daughter was being spied on and uh, those documents were contained in folders that said opposition research and we found out that um, this investigation the John Doe investigation and and John Doe documents from investigations going back to 1990 are still in the possession of the Government Accountability Board or their successor and Uh, It's amazing. And one final point, what we learned within the last few days is David Robles, the assistant district attorney for Milwaukee County, one of the lead investigators in Milwaukee County's John Doe investigation, remember they launched this and led it along with their partners, the GAB, 
David Robles, now we learn, is getting an $800,000 taxpayer-funded payout because of a weird system that allows big payouts to big uh, bureaucrats and government officials like Mr. Robles, and he gets a $60,000 a year pension. And for those conservatives who have been waiting for justice for years, um, here, here's your justice, I suppose. Well, well, he had a very Merry Christmas. He had a very Merry Christmas. We'll see, based upon that knowledge, whether some of these conservatives, thinking about their next legal steps, will have a happier New Year. Ah, and perhaps the ghost of Christmas futures will come for a reckoning. Of <clears throat> John Doe crimes past. <laughs> well, coming back from the holidays, the legislature is easing its way back into the calendar this week. Now, there are only a handful of committee meetings, but there's still no shortage of interesting issues being discussed. A lot of them have, you know, popped up, you know, popped up over the past few months and the one that caught my attention was on Wednesday the Assembly Committee on Housing and Real Estate we have a public hearing on AB 770. Now, this addresses the cost of local regulations on new home construction, which, which is a big issue. Um, unfortunately, this bill doesn't really do anything to reform those regulations. Instead, it authorizes TIF districts for, quote, workforce housing developments. Uh, that essentially means that the local government will take out a loan to pay for street construction, utility lines, sewers, etc., for these new developments. And then they'll use the future property taxes after the homes are built and sold they'll use that to actually pay back the loans. Now, this one really irks me because these TIFs, again, don't do anything about the cost, the burdensome cost of regulation, and they just shift it. So, meanwhile, these local units of government, including the schools, will have to serve those new neighborhoods, but they won't be collecting property taxes to pay for it because those property taxes will be going back to paying the loans. Yet another TIF shell game. The latest in, um, what, about a generation and a half of TIF shell games? Yeah, I mean, and that is something to really think about with these TIF districts. You know, in general, it's TIF district goes in place, you get all this new development, but the community doesn't get that new, you know, that new tax revenue. Well, people say, well, you never, the, you know, well, it doesn't matter because the city never had that revenue before, so they aren't missing anything. Yeah, except for they have to provide services to those new developments. And when we say they, we mean taxpayers of those local municipalities. Which puts these communities under exceedingly uh, stressful budgets and they might not want to say that this is the cause of it but it's definitely a contributing factor. No doubt about that. And Oli, there was something that caught your eye on the legislative calendar this week too. Yeah, there's an assembly bill, uh, assembly bill 730 to be exact, that is up for a public hearing next week in the committee on uh, rural development and mining. So this is a Republican bill that would reimburse outstanding student loan payments for individuals who move to rural areas in Wisconsin. Now, in order to get their student loans paid off, they have to have lived in that rural area or a rural area for at least six months. Immediately before that, they have to have lived outside of Wisconsin for at least five years. Uh, they must be employed full time and they must not receive any public benefits. If they satisfy all of those requirements, they could get either 40% of their outstanding student loans paid off by the state of Wisconsin or $25,000, whichever is less. It's it's a doozy, guys. Well, it's kind of a doozy. I, I, I love it. So I got to, 
So I come from New York or, you know, Illinois. Yeah. I uh, go to University of Wisconsin. Got a, got, got a sizable amount of student loan debt, you know, because especially since I'm paying out of state tuition. I presume mm -hmm. that's why they, they put that stipulation in there. Maybe you, need, you needed some of that remedial education that is so popular these days, <laughs> yeah. paying uh, full tuition for zero credits, getting the cost of that degree. Yeah. And, and I, can't get a, I can't get a job in social justice studies afterwards, so <laughs> I moved to Hayward, Wisconsin. I get a job working at Quick Trip, you know, full, so I can have my full-time employment. And the state will pay $25,000 of my student loans after six months. I mean, it's brilliant. Uh, the slogan, I believe, is, welcome back. Here's a wad of cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, one thing you just got to note here, there is no fiscal note on this, guys. For something like this, it's really hard to have one of those. We have no idea how many people are going to take advantage of this, what the cost even will be. Well, now, not, not us, the taxpayers. It's us, right. the state of Wisconsin, we don't know <laughs> how many people this would affect, how many people would be interested in it, and how much this could potentially cost the state. Right, exactly. You know, I, I know that there is a lot of interest in our legislature of getting people back to the rural areas, especially those young people. You know, you were mentioning before, Matt, brain drain is a real phenomenon that we're seeing. But, you know, for me, I think the, that they have to have lived in another state for five years is kind of the puzzle piece that doesn't fit here. You know, this is not going to help the person who's from small town Wisconsin has been down here in, you know, tax happy Madison or Milwaukee for quite a while and wants to go back to their roots and, you know, help rebuild their, their old small town. It's not for them. Um, so, no, this is something that we're going to be watching. I know, the, I know the intention here. And it's and, and it's well intentioned. I know that uh, Senator Tom Tiffany is one of the authors of this bill, mm -hmm. and Senator Tom Tiffany, who lives in Hazelhurst, Wisconsin, is very concerned about the exodus yes. of oh, yeah. citizens from that beautiful part of the state who just simply don't have any opportunity. And right. we talked recently, uh, Senator uh, Tom Tiffany, along with some students, college students, who were engaged in studies involving um, uh, mining and the opportunity that the mining bill, right. lifting the moratorium in this right. state, would bring to northern Wisconsin for people who simply didn't think there was any opportunity left in northern Wisconsin to get a good, decent family-supporting job. Those are the sorts of things that will bring people back. Right. Lift creating an environment that allows businesses to thrive and to expand and to grow and to locate here. But at the same time, I understand the need to have some kind of an incentive program to bring in people to fill the jobs like Foxconn, for instance, or right. the, the industries that are supporting it. I just don't know if this is the right incentives package. That's right. So create the conditions that results in the employer staying, expanding, or moving in, yeah. and then people will follow the jobs. That's exactly right. And the legislature and the governor have done a good deal of that. There's more to be done, for sure. But lifting the mining moratorium for northern Wisconsin sets up a great deal of potential opportunity. Those are the sorts of things driving down property taxes, driving down income taxes, as you say, once again, creating the environment for businesses and individuals to thrive, that's going to bring folks to a state, by the way, that can sell its beautiful 
environs. That's not a problem. Now, is yeah. this a well gener said. is this a generational thing where younger people just don't want to live in rural communities, or is it the fact that there just aren't good paying jobs like there used to be? I think That's it's because question. there isn't Uber in those communities. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get Uber until like last year. You know, as a millennial who comes from rural Wisconsin. Right. I'd prefer to live in rural Wisconsin over the city of Madison any day. Maybe I'm just uh, an old soul or I, something I think like it's that. A, don't you think it's a combination of that? I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, because yeah. I think that I think there are plenty of millennials, let's be realistic, that want to live in the cool Uber city. You know? yeah, until let's, they call, get let's call it Uber city, <laughs> wherever that may be. Right. You Places know? where there are opportunities, perhaps, as Places, you may have said. It doesn't get any cooler yeah. than having job opportunities <laughs> yeah. to be able to pay off your right. student loan. It's exactly. kind of like the bottom exactly. of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> and you can start worrying about the nightlife. And, right, you know. Yes, but let's be realistic. I mean, this is a mobile generation, yeah. uh, and it's, it's a mobile generation on top of past mobile generations. We've right. been a pretty mobile, mobile country for, for quite some time. This may be the peak of it all, where sure. where you have a generation of, of people who say, I don't, I definitely don't need to be with a particular company for 30 years in the Golden Watch. I'm going right. to go experience life, and I'm going to yeah. go where I'm going to find opportunity. Yeah. Well, you could still have that mobile life because under this bill, because you'd only have to live in rural Wisconsin for six months before you could collect and uh, then move on. That's right. <laughs> but, but ultimately, someone's going to have to pay for that. Right. So, exactly. So, so I think that ties in really nicely to the tax reform we were talking about, the importance and the significance of tax migration. People look at these numbers when considering their life choices, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, it, it might seem like such a small bill, you know, at, you know, at, you know, probably not the most prominent hearing sure. in the assembly. But, right. you know, here we've been talking about it for a while. We had lots to talk about. And, Chris, there, there's only two bills being brought up at that hearing. Yeah. And, Chris, you, you got something to say about the other bill. <laughs> well, just to continue on with the theme of uh, the state of uh, rural communities, the legislature is looking at a pair of bills that change the requirements of local governments to publish official notices in newspapers. And so this is more of a commentary, A, I think, on the newspaper industry and especially what the state is of some of these weekly newspapers in rural Wisconsin. Uh, we know that the traditional newspaper industry is kind of withering away. And, uh, and, and, and this is an attempt to update local, update the requirements of local governments. You know that you, you open up the, the classified ad section. It's all legal notices that no one ever reads. They're in fine print that's so small you got to break out a, a magnifying glass. But state law requires them to. But you wonder them. why that's in there. I mean, are, are these local governments just run by fuddy duddies or what? No, there's a state <laughs> law that requires local governments to post the proceedings of meetings uh, of. of you know, of the city council meeting, the school board, yeah. and other legal notices notifying the public that these meetings are going to go on. Well, these laws modify the definition of what a newspaper is to, you know, if you're in a community that doesn't have a weekly newspaper under the old definition, um, maybe you can, you know, if you're a publication with an, or a city with an alternative newspaper that's not a regular traditional newspaper or a shopper. I know that shoppers are uh, all over the place in a lot of rural Wisconsin. You know, everyone gets the shopper still. Yeah. Um, one of the funny things about working, I worked on campaigns in rural Wisconsin, was you had to buy ads in the, in the shoppers. Those <laughs> were far more effective than in the regular newspapers, we were told. So 
Um, you know, so these this makes it easier for local governments to put information in front of people's eyeballs and not restrict it to a traditional newspaper, which may not even serve your, your town. And that's the question, is how are we receiving our content? How are we receiving our information? As you mentioned, the newspaper industry, I don't think it's any secret, is kind of like Obamacare in a death spiral. It get, the papers get more expensive. And the papers get more expensive, <laughs> and you get less and less, less and less of them. And there's, there's no choice, or there's no, no choice. options in, so, in a lot this of the is, This is what areas. you get. Well, exactly. This, this seems to be leading us into AB70. AB70 uh, lets local units of government, this bill has been uh, kind of circulating for a while or sitting there, but this one lets local governments publish their, their notifications on their website. And I think this kind of has some newspapers concerned. Based on Bill, you mentioned some editorials that, railing that, against this. That's right. If you still subscribe to your local newspaper, you have no doubt read an editorial about why this bill would be a terrible thing. But do they clearly say in those editorials what we know? That they wouldn't be writing all of those editorials and fighting so hard against this legislation if they didn't get a special carve-out and a dedicated source of revenue that's very important to their bottom line. I didn't read that in any of those editorials. I didn't either. I missed, <laughs> I missed that part. But, uh, I mean, really, at the end of the day, sure, you know, if, if you're going to get a handout, you're going to get something for free, basically, yeah, you're going to fight for it. But is, is that in the best interest of the taxpayer? Is that in the best interest of the state of Wisconsin? All right. I mean, this is, this is a law that's made sense, I guess, at the time when newspapers were how people got their news, uh, you know, what, the 1800s, you know, the, or the, most of the 20th century. But now, uh, like with minimum markup, we have this thing called the internet which has changed how we shop and it's changed how we get our information. And to me, this is, it's a change to a law to update the way the government works uh, in light of the kind of economy we live in. And the kind, you know, the, with the internet has transformed everything. This isn't uh, the 1800s anymore, you know? <laughs> there could be some real lively discussions at this committee meeting on rural issues. It's just interesting to me, you know, the, all these editorials you talk about, the other many editorials in American newspapers have been devoted to embracing progress, embracing change, embracing the technology. This is the one area of progress and technology <laughs> apparently the newspaper industry simply cannot embrace. I find it interesting. They are yeah. bracing. They're bracing for it, though. <laughs> oh, they're bracing. They're battening down the hatches. Well, now. That's kind of what caught our eye for the uh, calendar this week, but you know, there's another really big issue that the legislature apparently is going to be taking up, uh, you know, before the end of the session, and it's, you know, kind of uh, raising raising some eyebrows, getting some uh, some emotions running. Uh, Pat, could you give us a little update on this one? Anytime you talk about environmental reforms, environmental uh, legislation or law reforms, it's going to raise some eyebrows, and it did right before Christmas, uh, I think lost in the hustle and bustle of the holidays was a pretty important hearing and a pretty important reform package that was uh, authored by uh, Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke, Republican from Kaukana, and uh, Republican State Senator uh, Roger Roth. 
basically what it involves is the definition of wetlands and when it is necessary and when it is not necessary for developers, homeowners, businesses, you name it, to get a wetlands permit. And while all of the media focus on that hearing was all about the environmentalist who came out in full force and full throat to defend Wisconsin's wetlands, what it failed to talk about when it was going into the breathless notion that there would be no oversight left, is that there would still be plenty of oversight left. <laughs> that oversight is built into the laws and built into this piece of legislation. What it did not address was the fact that we have in this state non-federal wetlands or those things that are really uh, connected to bodies of waters, navigable waters, all of those sorts of things, and they're listed as federally protected wetlands. We're not talking about, you know, what we consider marshes and grasslands, watery grasslands, all of these sorts of things. What we're talking about here is you don't need a permit. In one particular case, I know this is this happens more than this, but I know in one particular case, there was a development that was going on, a housing development, the recession hit, they stopped development, but the big tires on the construction equipment created ruts in a piece of developable land, and water flowed into that rut. So that makes it a wetland? That makes it, <laughs> under the law of the state, a wetland. We have so many of those cases. Basically, what this, what this reform package is all about is saying, Listen, you don't need a permit on these sorts of things. You don't need to go through a six-month process. You don't need to pay millions of dollars extra in some cases, thousands of dollars certainly if you're a homeowner, that this is not necessary. And the fact that there are 46 other states in America that don't have these sorts of provisions, these wetland, quote, unquote, wetland provisions. Uh, the hearing was pretty successful. One of the other points you didn't get in the, the, the mainstream media coverage was how many business owners, how many farmers, how many developers, how many homeowners. And there were many came from all over the state saying, we need reform. And it appears, according to my conversation with uh, Representative Steinecke, reform is on the way. There, this will be one of the first measures in what promises to be a short uh, winter legislative session. Well, good. Uh, congratulations to the environmentalists who made the couple of block trudge upstate. That's exactly right. They're <laughs> but, all uh, here. They're but, in Madison. They're down the street. You got all these business owners and all these these different groups. From, I'm assuming around the state who, yep. who came down here. So that speaks more to their commitment to this. Yeah. And do you think the uh, right before Christmas, so the Thursday before Christmas, they came came in here knowing the absurdity of you know of these wetland laws. Where if if you think of a wetland. Most people think of a, of a marsh and yes. some pristine, you know, maybe you think of a swamp or something, but, you know, with water and, and waterways and wildlife and, and all this. Sand crane just rising right. from the reeds. Something that, that, that I think most of us would agree deserves protecting. Not a, not a, rut, a tire rut in an open field that no, just happens to be damp. Or a farm field where there's, there's a bottom in the farm field. That's what we're talking about here. And it's just absurd. It doesn't make any sense. It needs to change. One other point, I think it's important. You remember with Foxconn, the whole uh, mitigation issue. Foxconn requires 1.2 acres of wetland mitigation for every acre of wetland. This law requires the same thing. 
that's uh, going above and beyond many states what, what is in place right now. Wisconsin will still have very stringent standards when it comes to wetlands. It'll just have more reasonable standards. All right, now sticking with the environmental theme for a minute, Matt recently talked about the state's new mining law on the McIver Minute. Let's listen in. This is the MacGyver News Minute. Here's Matt Kittle. The brain drain or the exodus of young talent has hit Wisconsin hard over the years. But perhaps no area of the state has been drained more than the Northwoods. But opportunity awaits just beneath the Earth's surface. Governor Scott Walker recently signed a bill that lifts the Badger State's 20-year moratorium on mining metals like copper, zinc, gold. It's called the Mining for America bill, but it might as well be called the Keep Our Kids in Wisconsin bill, Walker said before signing his name. Paige Courtney, a junior majoring in geological engineering in Michigan, says environmentally safe mining can be done. She's studying it. She sees the potential mining would bring to her hometown of Arbor Vita in Vilas County, and it might just bring her back home. I'm excited about the prospect of having a job at home, Courtney said. Mining could go a long way toward putting a plug in northern Wisconsin's brain drain. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on to MacGyverInstitute.com. And you can listen to the MacIver News Minute every Tuesday and Thursday on News Talk 1130 WISN. And uh, that uh, leads us to a good way, I think, to wrap this up. WISN has been a good partner for us in getting out uh, the word on waste, fraud, and abuse in government, all the work that uh, you good folks have done throughout 2017 and will do, I know, in 2018. Just want to wish everybody who's picked up the podcast and has listened and become a, uh, a uh, listener of the podcast. Thank you very much for that. I want to wish you a very happy, prosperous, and joy-filled new year. And I want to wish my colleagues the same. Well, you too. Thank you. Obscenely and, profitable 2018. Absolutely. <laughs> and if we were in France, I'd be wishing this for you on the next several podcasts, right? <laughs> that's right. Anyway, that's it for the MacGyver podcast. For this week, we sure do thank you for listening. It is the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin this week. We'll have a full report for you coming up next week.